Good afternoon, everyone. Have you ever thought about the question, why does the Bible speak of two covenants or testaments, as it's sometimes referred to? Did God try one system and find that it didn't work, so substituted another totally different system? Or did God give us an old covenant to show that man could not live by his law, then later substitute a new covenant of grace that required no obedience to law, as some contend. Is the new covenant the very antithesis of all that the old covenant stood for, as many assume? Why did God give Israel the old covenant? Why did he later institute a new covenant? The true answers to these questions have been understood by very few, yet they are relatively simple and plain, even though understanding the answers to these questions may involve some degree of complexity, mainly due to the falsehoods that have been promulgated about this matter. But nothing is more essential to a true understanding of Christianity than a knowledge of the relationships between the two covenants. Millions have fallen prey to subtle satanic deceptions because they lacked such understanding. Even some who have had a knowledge of true Christianity and have received the Holy Spirit have stumbled and fallen over a lack of understanding regarding this issue. If you have a background in the Worldwide Church of God or know about its history, you will understand that the contention of those who eventually gained control of that church contended that the New Covenant did away with any obligation to keep the commandments, especially the Sabbath, in any meaningful way, and that we were under grace and therefore did not need to be concerned about the laws of God and His commandments. And this is something that has been promulgated by a number of others who claim to be Christian ministers or leaders. It may prove essential to your salvation that you gain a true knowledge and perspective of the relationship between the Old and New Covenants, lest you be deceived about this matter and be led into error and stumble. Because of the importance and complexity of this subject, today I want to present the first in a series of sermons exploring the two covenants, that is, the Old and New Covenants and the relationship between the two. And it will take probably several sermons to conclude this series, but today I want to begin. First of all, why did God institute the Old Covenant? And what was its purpose? And the answer lies in a very few plain scriptures from the Bible, yet very few have understood the answer to this question. That may sound incredible, but it is true. 
false religion masquerading under the title of Christianity has so misrepresented, maligned, and vilified the Old Testament and the covenant relationship revealed in it that most people have been utterly confused and deceived as to its true nature and purpose. And for that matter, the new covenant has been totally misunderstood quite commonly as well. But to understand this issue, this question, why did God institute the old covenant? We need to cast off any preconceived notions based on false and ignorant assumptions, and we must examine God's word honestly with minds unfettered by religious traditions steeped in error, whether called Christianity or not. And our search for the truth will lead us all the way back to the beginning of man's history. It will lead us to a knowledge of the very purpose for which God created mankind. So let's begin with a simple statement made by the Apostle Paul. Paul actually tells us more about the true relationships between the covenants than any other biblical writer. Yet his writings have been twisted more than any other to obscure the true meaning. Our first plain statement regarding this important subject comes from the book of Galatians, which is one of the most misunderstood books of all the Bible and has been twisted more than almost any other book. Yet notice how clear and plain Paul's statement is when he asks the question, Wherefore then serves the law? In Galatians 3 and verse 19. Wherefore then serves the law? In other words, why was the law given? What purpose does it serve is the question. But before we proceed to Paul's answer, let's take a look at this concept of the law, what, what the word actually means. What is he talking about when he says, wherefore then serves the law, or what is the purpose of the law? The word translated into law by the King James translators is in every case in the book of Galatians, the Greek word namos, and this Greek word has the general meaning of law, regulation, or principle. The specific meaning must be determined by examining the context in which the word appears. Now, in English, our usage of the word law is much the same. We use the word law referring to a general body of statutes governing a city, state, or nation. That's one way in which we use the word law, a body of statutes established to govern a city, a state, or a nation, or referring to a specific statute, or in reference to officers responsible for enforcing laws. Or we might use the term in reference to a general principle, a cause and effect relationship as in science, the law of gravity, for example. So it's the context which determines the specific meaning of the word law or the Greek word namos in a given instance. Now what was the context in which Paul wrote to the Galatians? 
he was writing to a church composed primarily of Gentiles. And along with the Gentiles, there were no doubt some Jews and some other Israelites mixed in. But it was primarily a church composed of Gentile converts. Israel had a law. The law, as the Jews and Samaritans used the term in general reference, was the set of statutes and regulations written down by Moses in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And essentially the word Torah is Hebrew for, for law. And this system of law came to be called the law of Moses. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, as well as a number of other scriptures, we see this word, this term, law of Moses, and in verse 44 of Luke 24, Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you when I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now actually, the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures were divided into three sections, but commonly by the Jews, and that is reflected in what Jesus said here. He said the law of Moses, which consisted of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses for the most part, although there were some editorial comments added later, but for all practical purposes, the Pentateuch was written by Moses, and so it's called the Law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets, that is the books of prophecy, and then the Psalms, the writings, it's also called, which of which the largest section was the Psalms, so it was sometimes referred to as simply the Psalms, but that would mean all of the books of which the writings consisted. And what Jesus said here is that things were written in the Scriptures, in all of these different sections of the Scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the Writings, things were written about Him. But the Law of Moses, in this particular context, was the system of government and law instituted under and embodied in the Old Covenant, the covenant that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. And it included all the laws, the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances, and the judgments which were incorporated into the Old Covenant and which are written about in the Pentateuch. The Old Covenant was a national covenant whereby Israel was recognized as the nation of God, a chosen people, a chosen nation, which was established under a theocracy, and God was its ruler, and he's the one that gave them the laws which governed the nation. The Pentateuch, in a sense, was the Constitution, particularly the laws which God established for Israel was the constitution under which that nation operated. 
And so in Exodus 19, beginning with verse 5, God said to the people of Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all peoples, or all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, he said to Moses. And so, when Paul spoke of the law in the book of Galatians, and this is pretty much true throughout all of his epistles, he was most often referring to the law of Moses or the Old Covenant, which, remember, was the set of laws which established Israel as a nation under God, under God's rule. Now, that is generally true. However, Paul also occasionally used the term law in other ways. Sometimes he used this term to refer to law in general. For example, in Romans 4 and verse 15, he said, because the law brings about wrath, for there were, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So this use of the term where he says there is no law, that could refer and does refer to the laws of God, but it also could refer to other laws, not just those that were given to Israel, but other laws, because before there can be a transgression of any law, there has to be a law. He also occasionally used the term for an operational principle, as in Romans 7 and verse 21. He said, Then I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. He's speaking here of a law that, in a sense, is a law of human nature. The fact that our nature tends toward evil is a law. It is a law that governs how we are made, that we are lawless by nature, and that has to be overcome. He also referred to what he called the law of Christ. He said in Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, when he used that term, he was not referring to the Old Covenant specifically. Even though he used the term law a number of places in Galatians to refer to the Old Covenant. Another very important use of the word law in the New Testament is the Old Covenant along with added Jewish traditions. And this is one way in which the term law is used even to this day among the Jews. It's not just the Old Covenant scriptures or the law of Moses, the things that were written in the Pentateuch, but it also includes traditions added by the Jews, which were human-devised traditions, not a part of God's 
laws that is not a part of the laws that God gave and traditions which were rejected by Jesus Christ and the New Testament church. This concept of law was not accepted by the New Testament church. In fact, it was specifically rejected by Christ and the church that he established in Mark 7 and verse 6. It says, he answered and said to them, this is Jesus, answered and said to some of the Jewish Pharisees, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He referred to these Jewish traditions as commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. So these traditions added by the Jews, in fact, by the way, the Bible, God had had told the, the people of Israel they were not to add to the words of His law nor subtract from them. And yet that is what the Jews had done through their traditions. And in many cases, their traditions were contrary to God's commandments and how God expected people to follow those commandments. It was the scribes among the Pharisaic leaders who created and transmitted the Pharisaic rabbinical traditions. The body of authoritative traditional law which they formulated, which was called by the Jews the Halakha, and the Halakha which essentially means the way, was preserved in the Mishnah. If you want to find out what these laws were, you can read the Mishnah because that's where they were preserved. And originally they were preserved by oral tradition. Eventually they were written down and preserved in the Mishnah. And those traditions are extra-biblical. Now, they may be based in some cases on the Bible or ostensibly are based on Scripture, but they are extra-biblical rules which were not given by God. And although they are authoritative for Jews who follow Pharisaic tradition, much of the halakha is not supported by Scripture but was intended as a supposed hedge about the law to prevent any possibility of it being broken. And yet in doing this very thing, they were breaking the law for God had said, as I mentioned, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That's in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. And the same principle is stated elsewhere as well. In adding the weight of their tradition to the law of God, as Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse 3, they bound heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. And these laws that they made consisted of very detailed rules about what to do and not to do that really were virtually impossible to keep fully.
they placed the authority of their traditions above that of Scripture itself and thus blasphemed the Word of God. Joachim Jeremias was a German scholar who authored an encyclopedic study of economic and social conditions during the New Testament period. And he points out in discussing the Jewish traditions that their oral tradition was, as they viewed it, above the Torah. In other words, it took precedence over the written law of God. And he also stated that the esoteric writings containing scribal teachings were regarded by the Jews as inspired and surpassing the books of Scripture in value and sanctity. So they regarded their oral traditions as supreme in authority, even over the written Scriptures. Alfred Adersheim is also a scholar who wrote extensively on Jewish practices and traditions and customs and history. And he points out that the traditional law, as he put it in one of his books, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, the traditional law was of even greater obligation than Scripture itself. Now Peter remarked on these Pharisaic traditions in the conference of the church in Acts 15, which was convened to discuss some of these matters, especially circumcision and how it applied to Gentile converts. And in Acts 15, Peter said in verse 5, some of the, or well, first of all, in, in Acts 15, it says, uh, giving some of the background, it says, some of the sects of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is, Gentile converts, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now this was what some of the Pharisees in the church, those who had grown up in that tradition and still held to it, that's what they were proposing was to be done with the Gentile converts in the church, that they had to be circumcised physically and that they had to keep the law of Moses as they defined the law of Moses. And that would have included their oral traditions, not just the biblical requirements of the Old Covenant, but all of their oral traditions as well. And so in verse 7, it says, When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, that is, the Gentiles had become converted, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So what He's pointing out is that these Gentiles had been converted and received the Holy Spirit without benefit of being circumcised or of taking on the burden of observing the Jewish law and their traditions. And so, in that respect, they were no different from other converts. Their hearts had been purified by faith in Christ. And so he went on to say in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke 
on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So, as Jesus said, they had put on a great burden, a yoke in their traditions, which actually no one was able to bear. So, these are various ways in which the term law is used. Now, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. And the question, wherefore then serves the law? So which of these definitions then is Paul referring to here in this statement? Wherefore then serves the law? What is he talking about specifically? Remember I said that to determine how the term is used in a specific instance, you need to look at the context. And what law is then Paul referring to here with this question? And we don't have to guess as to exactly what Paul is discussing or referring to because he specifically identifies the, the law that he is discussing in this context in verse 17. He said in verse 17 of Galatians 3, the covenant, and here he's speaking of the covenant made with Abraham, as you can see in verse 16, the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the covenant with Abraham, the law, which was 430 years after. So, the covenant was confirmed with Abraham, and Jesus Christ was actually the personage who was acting on God's behalf, speaking directly with Abraham at that time. And he said the law, which was 430 years after, after this confirming of the covenant. So what law was given 430 years after a confirming of the covenant of promise given to Abraham? Notice that in Exodus 12, verse 40, it says the sojourning of Israel was 430 years. It came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day came to pass that all the hosts of the eternal went out from the land of Egypt. Now the 430 years that Paul is talking about that came after this confirmation of the covenant, this law that came 430 years later, is that period of time is the same period of time for the sojourning of Israel. Israel was, were strangers and pilgrims for 430 years before this law was given. And that sojourning of Israel ended on the day of the Exodus, immediately after the Passover. And what historical event we might ask, at what historical event did the sojourning of Israel begin? If it ended at the time of the Exodus, when did it begin? And the answer is, it began when Israel began to be reckoned as a nation in God's sight. From the moment of its inception as a nation, Israel was in the circumstance of a sojourner, a nation that were strangers. 
and pilgrims, foreigners. So when was this? When did Israel begin to be reckoned as a nation in God's sight? And the answer lies in Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old. And it was at that time, precisely at the time of year that Israel left Egypt, 430 years later, that God confirmed his covenant with Abraham. And in so doing, at that particular time, changed Abraham's name from Abram, which means high father, to Abraham, meaning father of a great multitude or a father of a nation or nations. As we read in Genesis 17, beginning with verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Now, it was at this same time that God gave Abraham for the first time the covenant of circumcision. And in so doing, he required his entire household to be circumcised. In verse 10, we go on in Genesis 17. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we see here that this is no longer just a covenant between God and Abraham only. It is a covenant between God and the house of Abraham. And that included his descendants, not just those who were present at that time. But it included his descendants 
Abraham was looked upon by God now, not only as a person, but as a people. He said, that person shall be cut off from his people if he is not circumcised. And that included his descendants. So it's not just Abraham now that this covenant is made with, but it is a people, a nation. Abraham and his descendants. God said in verse 14 that the man of Abraham not circumcised was to be cut off from his people. And on the same occasion, Isaac was named of whom it is said in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, Abraham actually later on had other sons. In fact, and before this he had had Ishmael by Sarah's handmaid. But God named Isaac, who was not yet born at that time. But Isaac was named, and God told Abraham, it is in Isaac that your seed shall be called. In other words, the people that were named in this covenant, as specifically being the ones who were bound by it, were to be the children of Isaac. And so the covenant included those who would be descended from Abraham through Isaac. As we read in Genesis 21 and verse 12, God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. He's speaking of Ishmael here. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then in Romans 9 and verse 7, Paul says, Nor are they all children, and he's speaking of who were included in the, quote, seed of Abraham, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So the covenant people, as far as God was concerned, began to exist. The nation of Israel came into existence with this confirmation of the covenant with the, not only with Abraham, but with his descendants. And that's when they began to be a people in the sight of God. Sarah's name was changed at the same time from Sarai to Sarah, which means princess. And on this same occasion, God said to Abraham, I will give you a son of her and she shall become nations. And he was speaking of Isaac as the one through whom this promise would be fulfilled. Now, when this covenant was sealed by circumcision the very same day, as we read in the New King James Version, or the self-same day as it is in the King James Version, in Genesis 17, verse 23, the nation of Israel came into existence. And at that time, the nation, having come into existence, also began its sojourn because Abraham was in the land of Canaan, as was his family, 
and the land of Canaan is referred to in Exodus 6 and verse 4, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Canaan was the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Now, actually, they didn't remain in Canaan. Later on, they left Canaan and came to Egypt, and eventually they went through other lands as well. But Egypt was also a land of Israel's sojourning, as we read in Psalm 105 and verse 1, where it's speaking of Israel. It says, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. In verse 6 it says, O seed of Abraham, His servant, you children of Jacob, His chosen ones. Notice the children of Jacob here are referred to as the seed of Abraham. In verse 11, saying to you, God saying to them, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in number, indeed very few and strangers in it. God had promised this, this inheritance when they were still strangers or pilgrims. And he goes on to say in verse 13, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. So there were sojourners and there were strangers, not just in Canaan, but in other places as well, especially Egypt. And in verse 23 it says, Israel also came to Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. Now, this occasion that we read about in Genesis 17 that this was the beginning of the 430-year period of sojourning for Israel is further reduced by the fact that the covenant of circumcision was renewed with Israel on the very day of the Exodus. In other words, 430 years from the time that Abraham and his household were circumcised, the nation that had been in Egypt was circumcised to the very day. In Exodus 12, verse 43, it says that at the renewal of the covenant of circumcision, the sign of an Israelite, the selfsame day, the Eternal did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That is, 430 years to the day from the beginning of the sojourn, God brought Israel out of Egypt, and that day they were circumcised. The Old Covenant is spoken of in general terms in the Bible as the covenant which God made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. This is in Deuteronomy 29, verse 25. It says, speaking of the covenant, it says, is the covenant that God made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. Now, actually God just began to establish his covenant when he brought them out of Egypt. But it took almost a year's time for the laws of the covenant to be fully revealed and implemented. It took the same amount of time for the tabernacle to be constructed. And this sequence of events follows the same pattern in both the year of Israel's original birth, so to speak, as a nation described in Genesis 
17, and the year of her rebirth, 430 years later, is described in Exodus, actually Genesis 17 and following chapters. And it was at the confirming of the covenant that Abraham was told Isaac would be born one year later. So God confirmed the covenant, but Isaac was not born until a year later, even though Abraham and his household was considered a nation from that time. And in Genesis 17, verse 21, God said, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So the gestation period for humans is about nine months. So three months later, Isaac was conceived. As you can read in Genesis 21, beginning with verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time on which God had spoken to him. So he was born at the time that God had told Abraham he would be born, which was a year after the covenant was confirmed in Genesis 17. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. In other words, she's, she's uh, laughing for gladness and joy at having finally brought forth the son to Abraham that was the child of promise, even though she was very old at the time, and Abraham was even older. After the exodus and the renewing of the covenant through circumcision with Israel, Israel came to Mount Sinai and they agreed there to the national covenant. In Exodus 19, beginning with verse 1, it says, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they come, came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain and Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And God spoke all these words saying, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the leaders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people 
to the Lord. And then three days later from Mount Sinai, God gave Israel the law with his own voice. In Exodus 19, verse 11, Let them be ready for the third day, and on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then in verse 14 of Exodus 19, it says, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. This was after he had spoken to God, or God had spoken to him. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. During that period, of course, is what he means. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain and then in Exodus 20 and verse 1 God spoke all these words and then he spoke to them the preface to the commandments and the commandments themselves the Ten Commandments and those commandments lay at the heart of the covenant that God made with Israel. A little less than nine months after that, the tabernacle was raised up, as we read about in Exodus chapter 40. In verse 17, it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. The sacrificial laws and other Levitical laws were part and parcel of that covenant, the covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. They had been given in summary form from Mount Sinai along with the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and then they were given in greater detail after the tabernacle was raised up but they were a part of that covenant. So the confirming of the Abrahamic covenant spoken of by Paul and the beginning of the sojourning of Israel coincided. 430 years later, the sojourning ended in the sense that God had freed them from slavery and they were brought out from Egypt. They were remained the sojourners in another sense until they actually entered the promised land. But God enjoined the law and the Old Covenant to Israel as he brought them out of Egypt. And during that first year, the nation was established under God's rule and under the covenant that, that they had agreed to, uh, agreed to with God. Now, it should be noted in passing that the occasion in Genesis 17 was not the only time that the covenant with Abraham was confirmed by God. It was actually confirmed several times as we read about in the book of Genesis. It was confirmed several times during Abraham's lifetime, both before and after Genesis 17. But Genesis 17 marks the beginning of Israel's sojourn as a people, as a nation, you might say. Now, the observation that the law of Galatians 3 
is the old covenant, the covenant God made with Israel when they left Egypt, which is referred to by Paul as the law. And by the way, the reason the covenant is often referred to as the law is because the laws that God gave to Israel, as I said, are at the very heart of the covenant. That is the basis for the covenant, that they would obey His laws, His commandments, which they agreed to. And so the old covenant came to be referred to commonly among the Jews as the law. And that that is the meaning here in Galatians 3 is conclusively proven in chapter 4 where Paul says that Christ was sent to redeem them that were under the law. Galatians 4 and verse 5. He says, Christ was sent to redeem them that were under the law. And then he draws an analogy between the two sons of Abraham and the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And speaking to those who desire to be under the law among the people there in the church at Galatia, and there were people who were claiming the reason the book was written is because there were people who were claiming that the Gentile converts had to be, con had, had to be circumcised, similar to what was being discussed at the conference where Peter spoke that we read about earlier. And the implication here is that they not only had to be circumcised, but they had to, be, to come under the Old Covenant. This is the subject of the book of Galatians. And he says the two sons, Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, and Isaac, the son of the free woman, he says those two sons represent the two covenants. The older one from Mount Sinai. So there's no question here about what covenant he's talking about. In this case, the older one, the older one of these two covenants is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which, Paul says, answers to Jerusalem. This is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 and verse 25. Answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So those people in, in the Galatian church who were seeking to impose the law on the Gentiles were seeking to place them under the old covenant, in effect. Now, it says in Galatians 4, beginning with verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but he of the free woman through promise. Now this is a very important distinction between the Old and New Covenants, as we will see. He goes on to say in verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem. He's using an analogy here now, which now is and is in bondage with her children 
Now, at the time that he wrote this, Jerusalem was under the boot of the Roman government. They were in bondage, in effect, to the Romans. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout for you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Now what he's speaking of here is that the church had been established and those who were part of the New Covenant church had been placed in that position through the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But the church was persecuted by those who were of the covenant of flesh. The Jews had launched a severe persecution, a number of persecutions against the church. And so Paul says, he who was born according to the flesh, speaking of the Jews, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Of course, this is speaking of the Jews who were involved in the persecution. Some Jews, of course, were converted. Not all Jews were persecuting the church, but many of their leaders were. And he says, even so it is now, because, as you will remember, that the son of promise, Isaac, was persecuted by Ishmael and his mother. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. This is speaking of what happened with Ishmael and his mother. They were eventually forced to leave the household. In verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free in this analogy. And so Paul likens those who desire to be under the law, meaning the old covenant, to Ishmael, the son of a bondservant, who represents those who are circumcised Israelites under the legal authority or the law of the old covenant. So Paul plainly equates the law with the Old Covenant here in this context, which was the covenant agreed to at Mount Sinai, which was 430 years after the beginning of the sojourn of Israel in Abraham's loins. It was by this covenant that Israel in the flesh was, in a sense, restored to their calling. The covenant renewed with them when they came out of Egypt through the circumcision of the flesh. And the nation was in a sense restored to their calling because in their sojourning and their tenure in Egypt, they had pretty much for the most part forgotten about God. But they were restored to their calling, reacquainted with God and became once again, in a sense, the nation of God. As God said, as we read in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So they were restored to their place as a chosen people and a holy nation before God, providing that they would obey his laws. So when Paul wrote, Wherefore then serves the law? In Galatians 3 and verse 19, he was asking why was the old covenant given? That was his question. Why was the old covenant given? That is, what purpose was served by the giving of the old covenant? And what was the answer that Paul gave to that question? The answer he gave is it was added or enjoined to Israel because of transgressions. So this is the basic purpose for which God instituted the old covenant. It was enjoined to Israel because of transgressions. But what does that mean? What does that mean that it was enjoined because of transgressions? And that will be the point of discussion in the next sermon in this series. And when we have fully explored the answer to the question, what did Paul mean it was enjoined to Israel because of transgressions, then we will understand the purpose for which the law, the old covenant, was given.